Brilliant. Let me pray again um, just as we start. Father God, we uh, pray that as we come now to, to three chapters, lots going on in there. Please, Father, as we have an overview of it, yet, though it's an overview, yet would we see the true message of this vision to Daniel? And please, Father, as you uh, taught and gave him understanding, please would you give us understanding in it too. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the future hold? Jen has already um, raised that idea for us. Wouldn't it be nice to know who's going to be the next PM? What's going to happen with energy prices and inflation? Uh, what does my future hold? Maybe on top of all the things that are going on in the world, maybe at the moment you're in the process of making a, a big life decision or you're waiting to hear back some, some big news. What does my life hold? What does my future hold? And there is simply an awful lot that we just don't know. But there is something, some things which we can know. Throughout the book of Daniel, we've, we've seen glimpses of the future, shown what is coming, particularly for God's people. And we've seen the, the ultimate end, where the, uh, that God is going to establish his forever king, Jesus, once and for all. So as we kind of, we've had snapshots, glimpses of the future. Uh, today, in the, the longest of Daniel's visions, the most detailed, we're, we're going to see that. We're going to have a more fleshed out view of what is to come. In fact, if you, um, we're going to do a bit of flicking today, but in chapter 10, verse 14, if you see this, this is what um, the angelic messenger who we'll see in a moment, uh, or sorry, not angelic messenger, this is the messenger we'll see in a moment, this is what he's come to do in verse 14. Um, he's speaking, uh, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So the messenger comes to Daniel and says, I'm going to explain to you what is to come for your people, for God's people. And knowing the future, knowing what the future holds is so important for us. It really and truly is. And I think it's going to be a challenge for us. First, it's going to be a challenge for us in that it's going to challenge what are we doing with the message of Jesus now? Because what we are doing with the message of Jesus now affects what our future is going to be. But secondly, it's going to be a great help for us, for those who are trusting in Jesus already, as we think about what it means to, to be uh, trusting in Jesus and uh, serving him as we wait for his return. As I said, today's vision is, is by far and away the longest of the four. It is the final one. It's at the end of the book today. Um, we haven't had time and we won't have time to read it all. But if you, if you are taking notes and you want to kind of have a bit of guidance for reading later on, broadly speaking, chapter 10 is a kind of introduction and a preparation for the vision that Daniel is going to receive. Chapter 11 is the vision itself, the main contents. And then chapter 12 is the kind of conclusion uh, and some instructions for Daniel. So that's the kind of big flow of these three chapters. Uh, and it, again, this vision covers the span from the Persian Empire when this vision came right through to the final establishment of God's kingdom and king. Many of the ideas that are in it are found in those other visions, but, but are fleshed out in more detail here. 
And this vision is dominated by this messenger who comes to give understanding. And here's my summary, okay? So three chapters worth, hold on to it, and I'm feeling very smug with myself because I've summarized three chapters in two words, right? Three chapters in two words. What does the future hold? Distress and deliverance. Distress and deliverance. So let's look at the first one there. Um, and this, we're going to spend more time on this one. What, what does the future hold? Well, distress, particularly for God's people. So let's start off in chapter 10, in verse 1, we find the setting of this vision. Third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And this word, we see again in verse 1, was revealed to Daniel. It's a true word. But there's an ominous note right from the start. Do you see there, um, at the, uh, towards the middle, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And it was a great conflict, or if you kind of see the, the footnote that's kind of saying the same thing, uh, really, it was about a great conflict. It's war. The vision of the future, it's war. It's a great conflict. And war brings distress. We see it on the news. We know it to be true. War brings distress. And so in verse 2, we find Daniel mourning. And that is fitting, given that all he is going to see what lays ahead for God's people. And while in this period of mourning, Daniel is by the bank of the Tigris River. Here's a picture of it kind of today. Obviously, it would have been different back then, but what you see is it's a big, wide river. And Daniel is down there having a walk with some of his friends. But then Daniel alone, he sees this, this heavenly figure in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, this kind of priestly wear, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, and that's a precious stone, um, I looked it up because I didn't actually know. Kind of usually green, but actually beryl can come in all kinds of colours. So some kind of colour, precious jewel. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So Daniel's friends have scarpered. Daniel alone sees this vision and he is shaken by what he sees. Verse 8 so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Who is this, this heavenly figure? I think that it is probably the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. So I said angelic messenger before. I don't think it's an angelic messenger. I think this is the Lord Jesus. For four reasons. Firstly, the people's reaction. The people's reaction to this uh, are very similar to other people's reactions to the Lord Jesus later, and particularly the Paul's conversion on um, the road to Damascus. And um, secondly, in verse 16, he's described as the one in the likeness of a children of man, and in verse 18, having the appearance of a man. Again, that language very much echoing that back of chapter seven when we saw one like a son of man who Jesus explicitly says as himself. 
And again, this, this language is echoed very closely in Revelation of the Lord Jesus. And finally, it's, it's what this figure does for God's people that convinces me that this is, uh, Daniel was having this vision of the second person of the Trinity, um, the Lord Jesus. And what does this, this heavenly figure, what does he do? Well, in verse 14, we find out that he speaks the truth and the future. He strengthens and enables Daniel to hear what he has to say. Because there's this wonderful contrast between this, this terrifying image, this terrifying view of him, his appearance, and yet his tender words. Have a, have a look at verse 11. And he, that's this, this heavenly man, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when, I, uh, when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, still trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And then verse 19, and he, he said, oh, um, and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Lord, uh, sorry, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. This figure comes to speak truth, strengthens Daniel to hear it. And this figure, most importantly, is the one who fights for his people. He fights for his people. In chapter 10, the first element of this great conflict, this, this great conflict is taking place in the heavenly realms. So, so just before I read a couple of verses, I just explain that princes seem to be referring to angels, uh, create real, created spiritual beings, some who've remained loyal to God, others who have turned and oppose him. So I think that's what he's talking about, princes. So, so let me read these two verses. Verse 13, we're seeing this great conflict in the heavenly places. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the good ones, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And verse 20, later on, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. These verses, I say, I think the prince is not, not the kings, not the rulers themselves. Okay? He wasn't doing battle with, with Cyrus. Um, Cyrus was the one who directed the people to go home. It seems to be these angelic um, beings and there's this battle going on that, that Jesus himself is fighting. And although it is taking place in the heavenly realms, it, it is connected to events here on earth. They're described as the princes of, of Persia and of Greece. What? Well, what's that? How does that work? I don't really know. But, it, but it's so, uh, what we see described here, and it's indeed confirmed in the New Testaments. So here, most perhaps clearly of all, in Ephesians 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. See how that heavenly conflict, or conflict that's taking place in the heavenly realms, just kind of spills over here on earth. And chapter 11, in some detail, then fleshes out how this spiritual battle is worked out on earth. Again, we've not got time to, to go through it. If, again, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to go back and look at it. Uh, let me kind of give you my, the overview of it. So verse 2 is talking about the Persian Empire, very clear. Um, that's the kind of time the vision was given. Verse 3 and 4 was the Greek Empire, the rise and then the end of Alexander the Great. Verse 5 to 20 cover two of the four branches that came out of Alexander. Stay with me. Well, don't worry. Two, two of the four, namely Egypt and Syria, and their kind of battles against each other. Verse 21 to 35, that's this wicked king, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. We heard him before. So again, one of the kind of Greek descendants who, who caused absolute havoc. And then verse 36 to the beginning of chapter 12, some people think it's still talking about Antiochus. I don't think it probably is. It's quite hard to reconcile with what we know of history of him. I think it's probably speaking about the one that we've heard in chapter 7 and 9, and who the New Testament calls the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, when he rises up to bring particular um, opposition against God and his people. So that's the kind of overview. Uh, have a read through it and, and see if you agree. But with that in mind, let me, let me pick out just a couple of um, key crucial details of this conflict and how it affects God's people. So if you kind of got lost there, come back. Okay, these are the, the really key things. Sometimes the war is going on around God's people and they are caught up in the middle. Okay, part of this conflict is happening around God's people, but they're kind of caught up in it. So in verses 5 to 20, we're talking about Egypt and Syria, and they are described as the king of the south and king of the north. Now, now why do they get these descriptions? Well, well quite simply, the, the king of the south, Egypt, king of the north, Syria, what's slap bang in the middle? You see the little red dots, Jerusalem, God's people. You have these two warring nations going at each other, and poor God's people caught up in the middle. And so chapter 11, verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, that's Jerusalem, with destruction in his hands. And actually, doesn't that often feel what life is like? Caught up, Christians caught up in the middle of chaos around us. But there are times when it will be worse, when it's not simply being caught up in the middle, but actually when the hostility will be aimed at God and his people. So with Antiochus, so chapter 11, verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus, who caused absolute chaos and horror and pain for God's people, when he came in, um, set up, brought in um, kind of pagan uh, sacrifices into God's temple, stopped the people doing their, their sacrifices, 
um, God's people facing uh, severe punishments, even death, for even being uh, calling themselves God's people. And so with the Antichrist in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak as... So what does the, the future hold? A great... conflict and in this great conflict great distress pain hardship suffering i said i wasn't going to use charts and kind of diagrams in this series i think they're a complete red herring but but i'm going to do it because i think this one's simple from here sorry back from daniel's day through the greek empire through antiochus to our day a great conflict Stress. It's a bit heavy, isn't it? Nice warm sunny, sunny summer's day. Not particularly uplifting. But it's better to know. It's better to know that. What do we do in the face of this distress? I think verse 32 sums it up best. Um, so here, this is talking about Antiochus's day, but verse 32, he, Antiochus, will, uh, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenants. But the people who know their gods shall stand firm and take action. What do we do in the face of this distress? Stand firm. Take action. The people who know their God, who know that he is the Lord who know that he is ultimately in control of all these events because he is predicting them hundreds of years before they happen and has proved it by telling Daniel, the one who comes and fights for his people, stand firm. Those who know him stand firm. We stand firm, as Ephesians puts it, in the gospel armor of the one who is fighting for us. Distress, stand firm in it. And we'll build on that idea a bit more again towards the end. What does the future hold? Distress. But we stand firm knowing that distress will turn to deliverance. Oh, sorry, could you go back? I've just gone beyond it. Deliverance. Here's the second point for us. Actually, in chapter 11, there are all kinds of numerous little deliverances. Because although this chapter is full of these kings and these nations of their evil intents and these indeed angels and their malicious, uh, sorry, the, the evil angels and malicious kings. Interesting, just in our English translation, but it, it, the word but comes up 22 times. We find these kings wanting to do this. Oh, but that happened. And then this king wanted to do this, but that came to an end. And most clearly, and I guess most, um, yeah, most clearly of all, verse 11, verse 45, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none to help him. So in this span of history, where so much um, distress will come upon God's people, either caught in the middle or it's directed at them, well, they come to an end. These kings, these rulers, they cease, they stop. 
But these little deliverances are unpacked in the ultimate deliverance, which is described in chapter 12, which is the one we had read for us. This is the end of the conflict once and for all. So chapter 12, verse 1, uh, marks the change from distress to deliverance. Uh, Let me read that. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. The word is distress. There will be a time of of trouble or distress, such such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But... At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This is the day when there will be only one kingdom left, the kingdom of the Son of Man, the kingdom of the the one who fights for his people. And when his kingdom alone stands, so will his people so will those whose names are written in the book. So see how verse 2 just so beautifully puts it. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. See, at the end of this great conflict, there's going to be a great raising, a resurrection day for all, for all people. But it's a day of these two futures, two eternal uh, destinies. Some are going to rise to everlasting life with the one who gives that life. Some to everlasting shame and contempt, the place that Jesus himself describes as hell. In, in the chapter, well, which I find lovely, in these chapters of such chaos and distress for God's people actually come what is probably the clearest description of resurrection life that we find in, Old Test- in the Old Testament. This great conflict comes to an end and then those whom God has solemnly chosen and written in his book, for them that distress will give way to deliverance, to everlasting life with their saviour. This is what the future holds. How long will the distress go on for? When when will this happen? Chapter 12, have a look at chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this side of the stream and one on uh, on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? The answer, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in the linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. What does that mean? Again, I don't know. I don't know. But Daniel doesn't know either. I find that really comforting. Verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. And I said to my Lord, what shall the outcome be, the outcome of these things? We don't know, but what is clear is that there is a point, a fixed time, a time that God knows. It will be a time, times, and half a time. 
It is a fixed time. And then this deliverance will come. And God's response to Daniel is telling. Again, it's not, oh, don't worry, try and work it out so you can be waiting, ready there. No, his response is telling for Daniel and indeed for us. See verse 9. Uh, so, so, sorry, so Daniel in verse 8 has kind of said, look, um, well, what's going to be the outcome? When, when's this kind of, he's asked for more. Verse 9, God says, uh, God, oh, sorry, this, this being Jesus said, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So it says, look, Daniel, don't worry about trying to work it all out. You know there'll be distress and then deliverance. Go your way. Get on with life. Carry on, Daniel, as you are. Go your way. But, but what is Daniel's way? Well, again, I think it's picked up in verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Get on with life. Wait patiently. Wait for this day, standing steadfastly, waiting for deliverance. Go your way. Get on with life. In chapter 12, verse 3, Daniel's way is described as the wise way. Have have a look at it with me. Verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. It's the wise who are waiting. Uh, sorry, but also the, the wise who are waiting, they, they aren't just kind of camped up in front of the TV waiting for this to come. They're not even just camped up with their Bibles waiting for this to come. What do the wise do? Let me read it again. And those who are wise shall start, uh, shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. You see, those who know their God, who know that this future will seek to lead others to righteousness. That is, to have a right standing before God. To have a place in his kingdom. To have their names written in the book of life. In other words, the wise are to lead others to Jesus. Now, you may well be wondering also, how do we know whether my name, our names, are written in this book? Well, when someone puts their trust in Jesus and all that he did at the cross, they are made righteous. They are made right before God. And so proving that their name is indeed written in the book. And the question for us, is that you this morning? Is your name there? We talk about planning for the future, don't we? Well, by that we probably mean kind of sorting out our pensions or kind of having money set aside for children for university or a house or whatever it might be. Well, this is the ultimate future planning. What are you going to do about your eternal future? Be wise. Be wise. Listen to God. Hear what the future holds and come to Jesus now so that you will rise to everlasting life. And he does. And for those of us who indeed are doing that, let's seek to help others do that same, to lead them to righteousness. What does the future hold? 
I missed the slides. Never mind. Can you go back to my little, uh, the, the one with the, I finished my chart. I haven't done my chart. I feel silly not to have used it. There we go. Distress, deliverance. That's the summer, isn't it? What does the future hold? Distress. An awful lot of it for God's people. But that distress will give way to deliverance. And that's what we are waiting for. We're waiting for the one who fights for his people, who died on the cross for his people, who's promised that he will come back, and that everyone who's lived, who trusts in him and lives for him will rise for life with him. So in the light of the future, be wise, hear, that, hear the message, stand firm, and wait. Let's pray we'll be doing, doing that. Our Father God, we thank you that you do uh, in these ways as um, uh, it's, it's kind of strange as they might be to our ears, yet, but yet you do uh, reveal the future to us. Father, thank you for preparing us, for God's people, for, for the distress, so that we know it's coming, <clears throat> can be prepared for it. Please would you strengthen us to stand firm, wait patiently, for this wonderful deliverance and helping others to know Jesus now so that they too would shine like stars. In Jesus' mighty and wonderful and precious name, amen.